All right, good morning. Uh, certainly is good to see all of you this morning. Uh, appreciate the fact that God allowed us to wake up and to, to come together to spend this time worshiping him, exalting Christ, and of course, trying to encourage one another as we try to live the kind of lives that would be befitting of the sacrifice that Christ has made for us all. As I was thinking about what to speak on during the course of this week, uh, I oftentimes try to think about some of the challenges uh, that we sometimes face uh, in our faith. And I oftentimes think about the young people in particular. I'm sensitive to the idea that there's so many things going on in our society and so much of what is taught sometimes in the schools and so much of what we face uh, is really designed to undermine our faith in God or undermine our faith in the Bible. And one of those things, I believe, is... Uh, certain kinds of questions that when they're posed to us, if we're not prepared for these questions, we have some difficulty answering. And you know, there's nothing like an unanswered question. Uh, it tends to, once it's implanted in the mind, it tends to fester and it tends to grow and germinate. And I tell you, friends, unanswered questions tend to undermine our faith. And so I thought maybe this morning we would think about one of these questions that I sometimes find people have difficulty answering, and that is, why does evil exist? I suggest to you that if you want to frame this question properly, the question is not only why does evil exist, the question is, if God is good, and the Bible says he is, and if God is great, and the Bible says he is, then why does evil exist? And I'd like to try to uh, take this question and at least how we look at this question in some digestible pieces this morning and think through it because you know what? The reason we have unanswered questions is because maybe we haven't distilled the questions in our mind or maybe we haven't gone to the Bible to find the answer, but you know, there is an answer to it. Why does evil exist? I'm thinking about moral evil this morning. I'm not thinking about natural disasters or accidents or illnesses. I'm thinking about moral evil. That is people making decisions to do things that are not good and not right. People making decisions to do things that are injurious to themselves and to others. Well, as you think about the question, the first thing I want you to realize is there is a question about the nature of God. As you and I think about what the Bible says about him, some would suggest that the nature of God as he is depicted in the Bible is inconsistent with the continuation of evil in the world. What is the nature of God? Well, we won't be able to digest it all this morning, but I do want us to think about at least two aspects of the nature of God as we see it in the Bible. Uh, first and foremost, I would tell you the Bible says that God is good. And it would, in a, in a theological term that you might use instead of good, is omnibenevolent. That is, He is all good. As you read through the Bible, the, the book of Psalms in particular, it says over and over, time and time again, God is good. The book of Psalms declare that he is good and that he does good as well. Psalm 119 and verse number 38, simply for one example. According to Jesus, there is none good except God. You remember someone comes to Christ and they say, good master. And Jesus, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There is none good except God. The Bible tells me that the God of the Bible is good. According to the Apostle Paul, those who taste God's goodness, 
are drawn to him as a result and motivated to repent because of it. Romans 2 and verse number 4. And so the Bible depicts God as being good, not just partially good, not just good some of the time. The Bible depicts him as being omnibenevolent. That is, he's all good. As I read my Bible, it tells me that God loves the entire world. John 3 and 16 says that's why he sent Jesus. 1 John 3 and 16 says that's why Jesus went to the cross, because he loves the entire world. Listen, that is without exception. He loves everyone. The Bible tells me that he blesses everyone also. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 45, you remember Jesus would say of him that God causes the sun to rise and the rains to fall. Listen to it. On the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust, God loves everyone and he blesses everyone according to my Bible and yours. The Bible says he is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works, Psalm 145 and verse number 9. And so some people would look at that and say, doesn't your Bible teach that God is all good, that he's omnibenevolent, that he loves and blesses everyone? Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, it does teach those things. It also teaches that he is omnipotent. That is to say he's all-powerful, that he's great in his power. You open your Bible and it declares from the very beginning that God is and he created everything that exists. The Bible says he did that by the power of his word. God spoke and the universe came into existence, friends. The Bible tells us that he is great. When you read through the Bible, you see the chronicle of his miracles. That is his power to perform things that are outside of nature. He's greater than nature. Yes, the Bible says he is great. You read through the, the Old Testament, you read through the New. The Bible tells us that God saves men from the eternal consequences of their sin. He is great. When you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this word translated some 48 times, I believe, uh, almighty. And it comes from a Hebrew term that really does mean most powerful. And so the God of the Bible is referred to time and time again as God Almighty, most and all powerful, the Almighty God. And so when we open our Bibles and we read about the God of the Bible, we see that he is all powerful. That's what the Bible says. When you come to the New Testament, there's a corresponding Greek term that means all ruling. And we see it being tendered again as a description for the God of the Bible. He is, he is almighty. In one place in the book of Revelation, it's translated that Greek term omnipotent. And that's the term I'm setting before you now. God is, God is all powerful. Listen, there's absolutely nothing God cannot do. Now, when I say that, we, we understand, I think intrinsically, intuitively, we understand that when we say that God can do anything, we do not mean to suggest that he can do things that are contrary to his nature. For the Bible says God cannot lie, and it means exactly that, Titus 1 and 2. That would be contrary to his nature because he is all good. He cannot lie because lying is evil and he is all good. You see, that'd be contrary to his nature. 
A second thing, when we say God is all-powerful, when we say he is omnipotent, we do not mean to suggest that he can do things that are logically inconsistent. Maybe you hear people sometimes say, well, can God create a rock that he cannot move? You know, that'd be logically inconsistent. Can God force freedom on people? That'd be logically inconsistent. What we mean to say is God has no limitations outside of his nature. What we mean to say is God can do anything he pleases to do. In Psalm 115 and verse number three, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he has pleased. As I read my Bible, it describes for me a God who is omnibenevolent, friends. As you read your Bible, it tells you that God is omnipotent. He is good and he is great. Now, listen, some people will look at that and they will say, if God is good and God is great, how then do you explain the existence of evil in the world? Uh, this is the so-called problem of evil. Uh, sometimes people ask questions and uh, they challenge uh, the Bible and they challenge the God of the Bible because they look at the things that are happening in the world and they say evil exists to an appalling and sometimes depressing extent and degree. And you and I would not quibble with that for all we have to do is uh, turn on the nightly news. All we have to do is open up our local print media and uh, our print news source. And we see that uh, men are still lying, stealing and killing other people. Uh, we open up our we open up our print media and we see that men are still finding new ways to do old things that God calls evil and sinful. Theft continues and so does murder. Terrorist attacks are happening all around the world. We see genocide campaigns are still being waged. We see human trafficking is uh, taking place all over the world, including right here in our own backyards. And we see all of these various kinds of evil. But but then you and I remember, friends, that this is nothing new for the Bible says in Genesis chapter six that the imagination of man's heart was on evil continually. And so we would never try to suggest to someone that evil does not exist. Yes, it does exist to some appalling degree, to some depressing extent. Yes, it does. Human history is largely an accounting of the various ways in which men have wronged and sinned against God and one another. Now, I'm suggesting to you that uh, it is rather natural, at least, to ask the question. To ask the question, if God is good and God is great, why then does he permit often gruesome and grisly realities to continue? Nothing wrong with that question, but as I, as I think about it, what I want to point out to you is this is sometimes fertile ground for unbelievers. Sometimes it is a fertile ground for the atheist or the agnostic to to say that, listen, this is why I do not believe in God. This is sometimes fertile ground for the unbeliever to undermine the faith of our young people. They, they ask them these kinds of questions or they set these kinds of things before them. And if they're unable to answer the question, then they walk away thinking, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something, something in the Bible that's not quite right. Maybe there's something in the Bible that doesn't quite make sense. And so I think it's worth a little bit of our time this morning to think this through, to pause for just a minute 
and think about this so-called problem of evil. As I, as I thought about this, I want to try to distill this to its bare bones for you so you can understand the argument that is sometimes made. First, the idea is that the God of the Bible, if he is good, would not want evil to exist. Uh, the second idea here is that the God of the Bible, if he is great, could defeat evil if he wanted to. The third idea is that obviously evil does exist. And the fourth is so the good and great God of the Bible does not exist. This is the chain of argumentation. A good God does not support evil. He doesn't like evil. A powerful God could do something about it, but evil is still here. So a good and a great God, the one you read about in the Bible, he's not real. Now, sometimes this argument can take two different tacks. Sometimes people will say, listen, there is no God. And sometimes they'll say, if there is a God, it's not the one you read about in the Bible. Before we look at the scriptures on this, because here's the thing, I told you, the answer is right there in the book. You just have to open it and read it. It's right there in the book. But before we do that, I think we ought to give some thought to the argument itself. What merit does the argument have? And I suggest to you there are some significant fallacies in the argumentation. This argument has traditionally been one of the strongest that unbelievers levy toward believers. But I'm suggesting to you that like all attacks that people marshal against the Bible and the God of the Bible, it is tragically flawed. The argument is tragically flawed. Before we look at what the Bible says in response, let's consider the veracity and credibility of the argument. Tragically flawed. As an initial matter, I would say to you that we have to recall that the existence of God does not mean that God created evil. King Solomon said, God made men upright, but men have sought out many evil inventions. It's Ecclesiastes 7 and verse number 29. You remember that God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, gave them a perfect living environment. They had perfect communion with him. And listen, Adam and Eve chose to do the one thing God told them would bring about evil consequences. He said to them, listen, you can have all of this, but if you do this one thing, then you will surely die. And guess what? They heard what he said. They understood what he said, and they chose to do the opposite. They invited evil consequences into their lives and into the lives of their offspring. Yes, they did. You remember that... Uh, those first brothers that we read about, Cain and Abel. God went to Cain and said to him, listen, if you do well, you'll be accepted. He invited him to do what was good, but he didn't, he didn't force him to do what was good and what was right. So Cain chose. What did he choose? He chose to sin. He murdered his brother, though he was invited by God to do what was good and right. And in the doing, he invited evil into his own life and visited evil into the lives of his brother and the rest of his family. What am I suggesting to you? I'm saying the fact that evil exists does not mean that God created evil. It doesn't impugn his integrity one bit. It doesn't suggest that he's anything less than the Bible says he is. It's not an imputation. That is to say, it is not an attack on his credibility as being good simply because evil exists. Evil exists because men and women have always, at some point in time, chosen evil over good.
And that doesn't say anything about God's character. It says something about ours. The second thing I'd point out to you is that we cannot properly define evil without acknowledging God. Usually what people do is they will define evil in a subjective way. They will say, well, listen, I don't like this and that makes it evil. No, ma'am and no, sir. It's not evil because you don't like it. You remember when God uh, gave Adam and Eve the garden, he says to them, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wait a minute. Where did the concept of good and evil come from? Because here's what I'll tell you. It's not a product of evolution as men understand it. No, it's not. Good and evil are morality judgments. And that doesn't come from a process of men coming up out of a pool of slime. It doesn't come about as the result of a big bang somewhere. Good and evil are judgments that are made based on the character of God. And so when men say that there is evil in the world, they're saying there is good in the world. Well, where does good and evil come from? It comes from the God of heaven. We can only understand the concept of evil when it is juxtaposed with the concept of good. And God is the one who gave us, who gave us both. Men would like to define good and evil in a way that always places them in the position of being good and somebody else in the position of being evil. But God doesn't define it that way. The Bible tells me in Romans chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. The Bible tells me in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, men, when they define it, they would say, I'm over here and I'm good and, and you're over there and you're evil. But God says, no, wait a minute. I am good. And without me, the rest of you have chosen evil. And I recognize you as being evil. What I'm saying to you is the argument itself that attempts to place a value judgment and a morality judgment on what is good and what is evil. What is evil. These things require that one acknowledge God, for he is the one who has given us these concepts. And they could not have come about as a result of some evolutionary processes. The third thing I'd point out to you, a fallacy with the argument. It is wrong, friends, to presuppose that God has no morally sufficient reason for the existence of evil. You see, people would say, well, listen, if God is good and God is great, then he would stop evil because there is no morally sufficient reason for evil to continue in the world. And there are two degrees that this argument can sometimes take. Some say it's, it's impossible for him to have a morally sufficient reason for the existence of evil. And some would say, well, it's not impossible, but it is improbable that God has a morally sufficient reason for the existence of evil. Now, here's the problem with that. This kind of argumentation assumes that an infinite God reasons like a finite man. This argumentation assumes that a perfect God reasons like an imperfect man. But the Bible tells me that that is not how 
The God of heaven reasons at all. In Isaiah 55, verses 89, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says Jehovah. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, listen, if you try to place my thinking in the framework of your limited mind, you're going to miss it because I don't reason like you do. So when a sinful man who has turned away from God looks at God and tries to judge him, and says, listen, you couldn't possibly have a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil to exist, then that man presumes too much. I tell you what, people who try to judge God's motives try to place themselves in God's place. And friend, no man has ever done that without being blameworthy. A fourth thing I'd point out to you in this respect is that the argument from evil is actually a question of God's timing and not his power. Some would suggest that, well, God can't do anything about it because he hasn't done anything about it. And I'm saying to you, that also assumes too much. Really what they're saying is God, if he was good, would want to do something about evil. And God, if he was good, if he was great, could do something about evil. And he has not done anything about evil, they would say. But here's the thing they don't say yet. God has not ultimately defeated evil yet. And so then they come to the conclusion, so he doesn't exist. Well, then they assume too much. It's really a question of timing and not power. Question, the fact that God has not ultimately and finally defeated evil, does that mean he cannot and will not ultimately and finally defeat evil? Uh, if you were to use... A sports phrase here. Uh, maybe you would say the game isn't over. Uh, you can't call the game before the clock runs out. I mean, you make a mistake if you try to assume that the score is the, the final score before the game is completed. In the game of life, if you will, it's not completed. Now, I say those things to say to you that uh, I think there's a, tri a tragic flaw with the challenge itself. And so I point the finger back at those who raised this challenge to the God of the Bible because there's some significant presuppositions and mistakes that are being made even in asking the question the way it's asked. But I won't use that as an escape. I suggest to you that uh, we still need to take a few moments to look at what the Bible says the answer to the question is because there is a very clear and simple answer. Turn to the book of 2 Peter if you don't mind. 2 Peter chapter 3 is what I want us to look at. God confronted and refuted this argument from evil long ago. It's not a new argument. As best I can tell, it goes back to Pythagoras. Uh, so we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years, almost thousands of years. It's not a new argument. And God answered the argument long ago. If you look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3, I want you to see how, how Paul by inspiration addresses all of this. 
In verse number one, this is now, my beloved, the second epistle that I write unto you. And in both of them, I stir up your sincere minds by putting you in remembrance that you should remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first, that in the last days, mockers shall come with mockery, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For from that day, from the day that our, the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation first. Peter says God knows that evil exists. God knows that evil continues. As a matter of fact, God sent his prophets long ago and he continues through his apostles telling the world that evil does exist and that evil will continue. God is well aware of what is happening in our world. He's always been well aware. Look at verses five and six. For this they willfully forget that there were heavens from of old and an earth compacted out of water and amidst water by the word of God, by which means the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. See, here's what people like to forget. God has already defeated evil. You remember in Genesis 6, again, the Bible says man's heart, the imagination of man's heart was on evil continually. And you know what? God did something about it. He changed his mind about having made man at all. And he destroyed men from off the face of the earth, saving Noah and his family to give man a second chance. But God has already defeated evil. He judged the entire world in the flood. He's done it before and he will do it again. Look at verse number seven. But the heavens that now are and the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire, not water this time, but fire, he says, being reserved against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But forget not this one thing, beloved, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Listen to it. God has done this before and he's going to deal with it again. This time he says not by water, but by fire in the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment. God knows that evil exists. And God is able to do something about it. He already has. And he's promised that he will again. So the question is, why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't he do it on my time? Or why doesn't he do it on yours? Or why doesn't he do it according to the schedule of the unbeliever? Why doesn't he do it to satisfy the critic when the critic wants it done? Well, it's all right there in verse number eight, verse number nine. See, don't forget this. When you think through this, don't forget this. God doesn't count time the way we do. 
The Bible says here, and this is just merely for an illustration, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is beyond time. God created time for us. He exists outside of time. And so what seems like a long time for us is really nothing with him. But then he tells us very plainly why he delays. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. God is not unable to do what he said he's going to do, and God is not listened to it. He's not late in doing it, as some men might like to ascribe him as being tardy or being late. But he delays. He allows the world to continue as it is. He allows evil to exist for a time because he wants all men to come to repentance and to be saved. I think this is ironic. You know what this means. The one who questions the God of the Bible, the one who would impugn his integrity, because he allows evil to exist, doesn't understand that God allows the evil to exist so they can exist. He's giving them space and time to repent. He's giving them space and time to be saved. And so it is the mocker and the scoffer these are the reasons that God delays. He doesn't delay for the sake of those who are already faithful. He doesn't delay for the sake of those who are already saved. He delays for the sake of those who stand in a lost and condemned condition now. He gives them another hour. He gives them another day. He gives them another week so they can repent and come to him and be saved. That is your morally sufficient reason because God loves everyone, even the lost, and he wants the lost to come to him. Why doesn't God wrap this thing up right now? Why doesn't Jesus come back right now and destroy everything that is right now? Because he wants more to be saved. And that's the only reason he delays. It's unfortunate and sad that those who mock God and question him cannot seem to understand and comprehend that they are the reason he allows evil to continue. But here's the thing. It's not going to continue forever. If you look at verse 10 in this same chapter, Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Listen, this is going to happen, he says. Now, here's the challenge he sets for those who read. Here's the challenge he sets for us today. Seeing that these things are thus, these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness? Looking for and and listen to it, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of the Lord by reason of which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But according to his promise, 
we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. God allows evil to continue right now because he's giving time and space for those who are mired in evil to repent and be saved. He's, he's giving the righteous an opportunity to continue to try to influence, to invite people who are lost to be saved. But you know what? He's not gonna deal with this forever. And if we know and understand that he's not gonna deal with this forever, he's gonna judge the world in fire. See, how ought we to be living today? I tell you, when you know that judgment is real and you know that God has once before judged the entire world and he will do it again, it ought to have some impact on how you live. Live soberly. Live righteously. Live knowing that one day you must give an account for the deeds done in the body. Know that God cannot abide evil and he won't. Not forever. Why does evil exist? I'll tell you something. The Bible says God is good and he is. The Bible says God is great and he is. He allows evil to continue for a time. Only so that more people have an opportunity to be saved. That's it. And if you haven't accepted his offer of salvation in Christ, see, this is your time. This is your time. He loves the world and he blesses the world. He has loved and blessed the world in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and for mine so that we could be saved. And we're only saved through our obedience in accepting the power of salvation. He has wrapped up in Christ and in the word of God. We obey the gospel. Therein, God has wrapped up his power to save us. Jesus is the son of God. You believe that? Then you repent of your sins. You change the way you live. Stop going after evil and follow after what God says is good. We open our mouths and confess that we believe Jesus is the son of God, and we submit to baptism to wash our sins away. God will make us new again if we submit to him in baptism. And after we come out of the water, friends, we just, we continue to live faithful lives. We continue to pursue what God says is good and right. And one of these days, you know what? It's going to be the last day. That'll be it and all. And God will judge the world in righteousness and those who are found faithful when Jesus comes again. Well, we'll get to be with him in eternity. I hope and pray that this is... Uh, this is helpful to you, at least in thinking about this question. There are lots of questions like this, but God has a sufficient reason for allowing things to continue as they are because he sees that the good in allowing things to continue outweigh the bad, at least for a time. If you would like to respond to his good and great and loving invitation to you, well, this is the time to do it as we stand together and sing this song of invitation.